We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. To really see Europe, go when others don't. And fly there with Aer Lingus. Our European sale is full of amazing off-season deals to over 20 European cities like Paris, London, Amsterdam and Dublin. Book today at aerlingus.com. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, Gator Nation, to the podcast. My name is Alan Williams, right here next to James DiVirgilio here in Studio B. Got a great show today, getting a chance to talk to Ryan Nanny of SB Nation, we've got the play-by-play voice of the Tigers coming up later. Ton to talk about, but let's get into this game. A lackluster effort, to say the least, by the Gators against the Commodores. I think all of Gator Nation is feeling a little bit on edge. James, are you concerned by the play that we saw on the field on Saturday? I was concerned when I watched the game. I was more concerned after watching film, and I am now the most concerned today hearing that we have sustained a significant number of injuries, some of which may impact the LSU game. So yes, I'm concerned. It cast a shadow over that result, certainly. A lot of weird moments in this game feels difficult to analyze. Um, I don't know. I, I walked away from the game the first time feeling like, oh, that was rough. Watching this second time... Uh, maybe a few brighter spots, maybe a few worse spots. When you walked away, what was your first impression? I was watching the game in Atlanta. I was there for my cousin's wedding, and my my other cousin, my brother, and some friends were watching it at a at a Georgia sports bar at noon, which is just the death sentence of a game. Like the first one's in there at noon, like nothing is alive. <laughs> and and we came out, and I thought we actually played with a lot of energy on defense, but the team it didn't feel like we were dead out there. The performance was dead, but it didn't feel that way. And I just left. The sports bar thinking, ugh, I had predicted the score to be 35-6. to six. I thought if we were a real team, in my mind, we were going to take care of business. 
And, and we didn't do that. And it's important to remember that this is a defense in Vanderbilt that gave up 500 yards or so to the likes of Middle Tennessee State, Western Kentucky, and Georgia Tech all in a row. All in a row, that happened. And then we come in and have their best defensive performance, our worst offensive performance of 236 yards. This was a very Will Muschamp-like win for us, only that Will Muschamp even put up more offensive yards than we (laughs) did in their game against Vanderbilt. So it's really hard to feel good about that kind of result. It's not like Vanderbilt magically got better and all of a sudden was ferocious on defense. This is a bad defense, and we made them look very, very good. Let's talk about the offense. There were some good points and bad points. Let's discuss our quarterback, Austin Appleby. How would you grade him out for this game? Well, I was hyped up on him after watching the film before the game against Tennessee. You were. I was hyped up. I thought he could make a lot of throws. And in this game, he looked very much like the quarterback that that played at Purdue with a bad offensive line. Uh, He he didn't attempt to scan the field. He didn't attempt to make any sort of read. It was primarily pre-snap read and throw the ball to whoever I thought that read should be. He was inaccurate. The parts we've we've talked about Austin Appleby being bad about were bad. Um, He missed a ton of throws, uh, most notably crossing routes. Callaway, who's our best receiver, was wide open on at least three different occasions. Right there at that... Yeah, right there at the end zone on a drag route previous to that in the game twice. Uh, Certainly there are times when he doesn't have any time. So it's understandable that in his mind, he's just thinking, don't take a sack, don't take a sack. And and he's done a pretty good job of avoiding sacks. But that comes at a cost to him of not reading the field anymore. He takes his eyes off looking downfield. He, he, He becomes very erratic with his footwork. So he really just basically right before your eyes sort of degenerates right to like a high school level quarterback and and I think the players feed off of that he, he's a really well-spoken guy during the week but during the game you can just feel him losing confidence and you can feel that even though he's the oldest guy in the field he doesn't have the command presence that you would want he, he's not inspiring confidence in the offense even though he'll occasionally make a good throw or two so I was very disappointed with his play the maybe silver lining to that is, and we're going to talk about this coming up on the the other side of the show, is maybe our quarterback controversy isn't actually a quarterback controversy. And and we're going to discuss the pros and cons of Del Rio versus Appleby and obviously Del Rio's injury. But in a nutshell, disappointing game from Appleby. He left a lot of throws out there. He did not play particularly well. Maybe he plays better behind an offensive line that, that plays well because they certainly were terrible. That's a possible narrative, but with the throws he could have made, he, he was not efficient with, with making the right decision and distributing the ball. Well, we saw the guy who looked like he the one who lost the job to Luke Del Rio. So he looked like the backup quarterback out there this week. The guy that we saw in the first half against, half against Tennessee looked like the guy that maybe we dreamed he could be. Big arm, unafraid. And then you're right, we just saw him kind of slide away. And of course he would play better against behind a better offensive line and there's good moments to like in this game i love that we moved the ball at the end of the first half and got a field goal could have been a touchdown probably if he makes the right throw to goolsby in the end zone there you could see mcelwain was frustrated with that but yeah it feels like appleby maybe was the guy that most of gator nation thought he was coming into the tennessee game worried about him that he's not gonna be able to make all the throws that he really is a backup quarterback and so when you look at our offense from that perspective, playing on the road, conference game, with a backup quarterback, maybe you're not expecting as much. I don't know. 
you're expecting more than what we what we got. And, and those are not difficult throws McIlwain asked him to make. And as a guy with the playing experience he has, he, he should be able to do it. But the thing we're going to talk about on the other side of the show is that Luke Del Rio isn't exactly a starting quarterback either. We really have two backup quarterbacks on the team. They each have their own pros and cons. We're going to discuss whether this can be good or bad going forward and kind of what it even looks like. Uh, I couldn't help myself thinking of quarterback play about thinking about, of course, Will Greer. And the we're not going to we, yeah, we're not going to talk about this for more than the next twenty seconds here. But Will Greer would be coming back after this week, and had we kept him on the roster and made any attempt to keep him, and you know my sources have told me consistently he wanted to stay here, and McElwain essentially ushered him out the door. There's good narratives for as to why he betrayed the program, whatever you want to look at. No one knows the truth. But the reality is we would have had a guy who's undefeated as a Gator starter and clearly better than Del Rio or Appleby waiting to come back after this game. And then he would have also been here for at least the next year. We don't have that. So we're going to move on with with quarterback play that's questionable at best from both sides. We'll dive into that. Something that, that hasn't been affected by a performance-enhancing drug, but yet still is struggling greatly is the offensive line. What were your thoughts on the offensive line's play on Saturday? I was really disappointed by them. I, I was hopeful that they were going to really take a moment to step up and play well with a guy like Appleby back there, that we'd be able to churn out some yards against Vanderbilt, and that wasn't the case. Uh, man, guys that you would hope would be cornerstones of this offensive line, Martez Ivy. Sharp on the outside, even Dillard, who's gotten a decent amount of starts at center. All of them really struggled. Um, and missing, like, you know, some key blocks and some key moments really sets you behind the down and distance. I was having these moments, these flashback moments to the Will Muschamp era. You evoked his name earlier when we, when they botched the punt and we didn't scoop and score somehow with three people there. I was like, Oh, man, I don't know if we're going to get in the end zone. Oh, gosh, that was the worst. Uh, Having that feeling where you have the ball in the 10-yard line and you don't think you're going to be able to score. And so, and I think a lot of that rest of the field offensive line, I mean, what was a major question mark still coming the year we were hopeful about, it's starting to feel like it's going to be the thing that kills our season. What about you? It's demoralizing on film to watch what was out there. This was not the second half of Tennessee where they had eight men in the box. In fact, most of the time, Vanderbilt was content to sit in a cover two zone 80% of the game with seven men in the box. So from what I saw, on the majority of our run plays, we were at least even numbers in the box. At least even numbers. Multiple times, we had eight versus seven, and we gained a yard, which is beyond brutal if you're thinking about even high school football, but let alone college football, when you're the team with superior talent and you are losing against the defense that have been getting gouged eight on seven. Um, Primarily the three guys you mentioned continue just to put really, really poor things on film. Uh, And that's that's obviously Ivy, Dillard, and Sharp. Dillard, at least three to four plays a game, will just flat out get pancaked, miss a block, be in the wrong hole right off the start, which will kill any sort of play where he has to get anywhere. Sharp, at least twice a game, is going to get completely run by by an edge rusher and that's going to kill a passing play and then ivy at least four times a game he's the most egregious of the offenders it's going to just whiff a block without even a stunt just whiff a block of guard where it's the easiest spot to block anything like that so you're looking at eight to ten plays each game where the offensive line is going to just ruin the play and on the flip side of that you're looking at very few plays where they actually create a downfield blocking presence to negate their mistakes so the question that's been raised a lot over the weekend and i got a lot of text about is 
what should we do about Mike Summers, our offensive line coach? Uh, you know, if you're if you're on one end, you're saying we should fire this guy; he's a disaster. If you're on the other end, you're saying, hey, it's it's one of the youngest offensive lines in the country, which is true. It is. We have one junior in Dillard starting. Everyone else is a sophomore, a redshirt sophomore, a freshman. Not a lot of experience there, but I am not seeing game to game improvement. And when you don't see that against an overmatched opponent, that concerns me. Am I saying we should fire Mike Summers right now? Saying should fire someone is a big accusation. It's hard to make that call. I would be can I would be looking into him closely if I'm Jim McElwain. He's not a good recruiter. You're not seeing game to game improvement. It's a unit that is consistently hurting you. It's not a happy situation. And it's hard right now to think that next year these guys are going to be significantly better. Because there seems to be a talent issue. Only Ivy was a really highly recruited lineman out of our current starters there. Some of the other guys were across the board. But it's hard to know that just because they get more veteran doesn't mean they necessarily become any more physically gifted or faster off the edge. So I don't know what to think about this going forward for this game and or the future. It concerns me greatly. We'll talk more about what can be done when we when we break down the upcoming game against LSU. But very, very disappointing performance. It was worse on film than maybe it looked, if that's even possible, watching the game live. And I do want to bring up, again... It's not an excuse that they're younger, but it is a certainly a factor. Most of the time, with programs that have a healthy offensive line unit, guys aren't playing until their junior year, senior year, redshirt, sophomore year, something like that. These guys have been thrust in really early, out of position. I, I still have hope that they're going to improve throughout the year and into next year. And the way Vanderbilt played us was really interesting. We were trying to gash them on some of those quick runs um, between the – guard tackle spot on the right side and we had some success success with that with scarlet but vanderbilt deployed a defense especially with their best player zach cunningham he seemed to be everywhere on the field we could not account for him at all and i that's that's also concerning for me that we let this one guy basically dominate us on defense pretty rough okay i want to ask you about the running backs i think we like all the guys all four guys on some level there's a lot of talent back there They've all had bright spots. Do you like the rotation of four backs at this point in the season, or do you wish they would narrow it down? What would you like to see them do with running backs? Diversification without a mathematical reason is is sort of just foolishness to me. Uh, you, you don't just rotate guys because they're all good. You know, that That's an inefficient way to do anything. Um, it's a popular concept, I feel like, in today's society, and it's, it's, it's stupid to me. To me, Scarlett has emerged as what I continue to think is the best every down running back. Um, there's other things other guys do really well on the team, for sure. But but Thompson continues to miss holes. There was a play in that game where he had a cut side back. He, he might have taken it for a touchdown, and he runs right into yet again. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Just, we gain nothing when it could have been a huge play. And, and these the, our offense is struggling. We need to maximize every play we can. And, and so we continue to bring it up on the show. Look, I think Thompson's this big, strong guy. He had a lot of hype. But when you look at the film each week, it's the wrong hole. He, he minimizes the, re- the return you're going to get out of that run. And Scarlett does the opposite. I mean, Scarlett ran the ball on a touchdown when he was touched two yards in the backfield. Mm-hmm. And he scored. It's horrible offensive line blocking. He pretty much took that drive upon himself to score. And then I don't think he touches the ball again for I don't know how many minutes of football time. But... I don't understand that. If it were me, I'd probably be giving 75% of touches to Scarlett. I think so far from what we've seen from from P. Ryan, he'd probably be second. And then I, I think I'd go with uh, Cronkite third. I think he runs well. I think he hits the whole way. He has good vision. And Thompson's my last guy. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on now. I'm not sure it's going to change in the future. And, and it's possible there were a lot of these behind closed doors, 
come play for Florida, you're going to get these many carries deals. That's my gut feeling is that you're trying to maintain an athlete's happiness at this point in time. And you figure you'll deal with whatever production loss you have because all those guys are happy and you're able to tell future recruits, hey, we're going to play you. But I don't like it given that we're, we're squeaking out games against Vanderbilt and we're, we're not maximizing our, our production. Well, as long as all the guys were being productive, and they all had pretty similar statistical stat lines, yards per carry and things like that, I was like, go for it because they're all going to be fresher down the line in the season. The problem with giving a, one guy the bulk of the character carries is that you kind of grind him out, not even just during the game he's going to get tired, but over the course of the season. So I like spreading the carries not giving one guy too many so that you can have him in there in, in key moments and key drives. But I, I would 100% agree with you that it feels like Scarlett's our best player at that position right now. That P. Ryan gives us something that maybe nobody else does in his acceleration in certain plays. And then I would say maybe Cronkite is the guy you'd want in there on third down, pass protection, route running, at least in the small sample size, he seems to do well in that. We don't use him a ton, but seems like that could be a place where he could carve out a role for himself. And Thompson continues to disappoint. I mean, you're right. His lack of vision is basically cratering every other positive aspect of his game. Big guy, fast, decent feet in the hole, but just no vision. If you could put, I think, P. Ryan's vision as a freshman into him, he would be running through people. So we'll see how they move forward with that. The coaching staff has started to shift towards Scarlett a little bit and trust him a little bit more, whereas maybe they didn't last year and they wanted to. So we'll see how his carries kind of go. But 92 rushing yards is a joke. And that's what we totaled against Vanderbilt when we wanted to try to run the ball. It's not like we were like having such success throwing the ball down the field. That's a, that's a pretty abysmal stat. Looking at the defensive side of the ball, the Gators gave up six points, which at least I got that part right in my score prediction. Was this frustrating, good, bad, exciting? What was it to you? I don't know. All over the place? I mean, normally if you give up six points, you're like, great defensive effort, no touchdowns. That would normally grade out really well. But watching the game, it felt super frustrating that Vanderbilt was loading up, running the ball right at us, and eating up a ton of time of possession, and having success moving the ball where we didn't want them to in certain parts of the game. It's not like we were out ahead and we're letting them chew up the clock fine run the ball all you want you know we're up by 30 points so that was really frustrating um how about you how did you feel about the, their performance overall it was a it was a frustrating performance and I, I found myself so the past defense was generally solid uh we continue to struggle on third and long in certain situations we have a fantastic third down conversion percentage uh, even though Tennessee obliterated us in the second half, it's still good nationally. But in this game against Vanderbilt, there were multiple times where they converted third downs over the middle yet again. Yeah, and, and we played zone in this game several times, which of course I was happy with. In fact, we got two interceptions in the zone. Tabor's pick in the zone as well as Washington's pick at the end of the game. Those are both in, in a zone defense. They were not man-to-man, and I think that's part of why you get those. But inexplicably at times they're they're completing their first look throws on these third and down plays and we are getting pressure on them so frustrating we can't cover the first read in those scenarios um frustrating that they were able to run the ball with such success especially like you said it was a high school offense it was a glorified high school offense they're running uh, what's traditionally called you know 12 personnel where you have one receiver going out for a pass generally and oftentimes he was actually blocking and so you had you had 10 guys blocking 
Um, some plays, the quarterback, of course, generally not involved in that. So we were content to sort of keep a line of seven for a while. Then we'd bring eight, sometimes nine in the box, and we still couldn't stop them. And that was frustrating. We played plenty of plays in that game with nine guys in the box. It was not like we were just sitting back in the nickel. We were not. We were aggressive on the edge. We ran a lot of what looked to be like a 5-2 style look, and and we could not stop them. It seemed like the root cause of that on film was we had a problem setting the edge multiple times. So our defensive ends, not only would they get washed out of the play, but they weren't setting any sort of edge. And that's a problem. And then we also had an issue in the interior. We started to accumulate those injuries, and all of a sudden they were able to really get a lot of gap control on whoever we were rotating through there. And we were throwing plenty of bodies in there. And, and it was it was frustrating because Vanderbilt is a really good rushing offense. I'm not taking anything away from them. They're good at running the ball. They average you know, four yards a carry against just about everybody. But if we're matching them man for man, I, I can't see why they should be able to run the ball on us like they did. Well, I think injuries have to you know, play a part in this. We're missing at times our entire starting defensive line. So no Jordan Sherritt, who's been surprisingly well at stopping the run. Joey Ivey, who's out several weeks here, has, I think, been our best run defender. Brian Cox, in and out of the game, he's pretty stout at doing the thing, like you said, setting the edge and being stout. He's not the most dynamic pass rusher. He's really solid. And then Caleb, Caleb Brantley hampered all throughout the game. And so the guy, gosh, some guys who are not great at that, Kivanis Davis getting just mauled in certain places. He's a young guy still. Not a really big guy being forced into action. I think he's fine when he can, you know, basically pin his ears back and get after the, the quarterback. But a lot of, I don't know, a lot of issues in terms of, I think, our backup linemen having the experience level when they're being counted on, like, intense situations to come up with the right plays. Right. Being in the wrong gap, um, I think, affected us at times. And that just comes with experience a little bit, too. And that's everything you saw. And, and we're, I'm going to give you some numbers, because unless you're watching all the film and following all the, the guys, you might not even know whose who's number some of these guys are. But Taven Bryan, number 93, is a redshirt sophomore. He played a lot last week. He's probably going to play a lot this week. Uh, Polite, number 99, is a true freshman. Played a decent amount of snaps, especially in the fourth quarter last week. You mentioned Davis, um, <clears throat> number 95. And he's, he's a young guy as well. And then Clark is a sophomore at number 54. And those four guys played a lot on the defensive line. And it, it's, again, you defensive line is a hard, hard transition to make. You cannot expect these guys to come in and replace the production of your juniors and seniors. And I, there's no fault of these guys. But Vanderbilt was able to take advantage of that. And so it's, it's less concerning if you say, hey, we're going to get healthy. It's not looking like we're going to get healthy. And so now you've got a situation where you're going to have to say, okay, we cannot just rely on our four down linemen to gap control a team's running game. Now we're going to have to do some things to alter that. And one of our other problems is we don't have a lot of linebackers that have experience. So you can't all of a sudden just switch your defensive style from a nickel four down lineman set to something that maybe you put more linebackers on the field to try to help you. We keep bringing in more defensive backs. We bring in safeties to come down and play in the box. So we have this weird scenario. We have eight guys in the box, but two of them are defensive backs, right. and they're just there to stop the run. They're not covering anybody, whereas another team would bring in two more linebackers, way more size, way more ability to press alignment. It's just difficult to ask Marcus May to continually be a guy that plays like a linebacker every single game when these teams like Vanderbilt are going to have to load the box up. It's a tall task for them. So do you think that's more of a schematic preference for the coaching staff or 
maybe a personnel issue that we don't have those linebackers is just that they would rather stay in that nickel in case Vanderbilt catches them on some passes and just hope that we can kind of hold the point of attack or is it that we just don't have the linebackers that we trust to put out there if you look at Collins's work in Mississippi State he was a multiple front kind of guy he would drop eight a lot he would mix in a lot of different situations he wasn't just like a nickel guy I want to say it's what we've highlighted this season. Looking at our personnel, the best way to play defense and get all of our best players in the field is out of the nickel. I think that's why we've done that. Um, this past week against Vanderbilt, we were not in the nickel as much as normal. Uh, we were, like we said, rather early on in the game playing eight guys in the box. It just wasn't as effective as it should be because we don't have the size at linebacker to bring in and stop those runs. You know, All of a sudden, you swap out those two safeties, those two... Uh, coverage guys for a 240 pound linebacker you might get a different result when they're running the ball every single play we didn't get that so I, I don't what else could he have done in the game to change the scheme not that much which is why I feel a lot better than the way it was with Tennessee where I felt like we got out schemed I felt like we were doing the right things against Vanderbilt's offensive game plan they were just executing against us they were shoving our guys out of way they were creating lanes they were getting downfield blocks and at some point in time as a coach all you can do is put the the hands in the game of your players and I think his game plan did hold them to six points for good reason. They could not pass on us basically at all. They could run the ball, but they couldn't hit a home run with it. So all in all, the game plan was effective. Was it a shutdown performance we wanted? No. But at the same point in time, if we get a few scores ahead of them, they have to abandon that game plan. Exactly. And our defense really shines. That game plan was perfect for Vanderbilt to basically say, let's not have to face Florida's strength. Let's just wind the clock down, grind the game out. And that's what happens when you cannot play offense. And as Gator fans, we've seen this for far too many years now. We can't score to put any pressure on the other team to have to get outside of their comfort zone. And so essentially you're playing their game. And that's the result you get. It's just meh sort of result. Um, right. So they weren't going to score that many points. I feel like if the offense, like you said, puts some more points on the board, it feels a lot more comfortable. And they, you know, I like their set of running backs. I like their tight ends. Um, you know, especially when they're blocking, they were, they were getting movement on our guys. And so you're right, that is a strength of theirs. And this has been my worry all season. If a team's going to load up and run it right at us, they're going to have some success. Now, again, it's moderate success. It's six points of success. I think we need to take that into account. But if someone who does that a little bit better, i.e. LSU, coming up here, could be a little scarier. There was a couple of guys I wanted to mention on the defense who did play well, Anzalone, all over the field, plays almost every snap. He's great at timing his blitzes. When they send him, he's there. He's He affects the throw several times. Tip balls, making the quarterback throw early. Loved him. And then Tease, Tabor, you know, got some criticism last week. Thought he played pretty well in this game. That interception was really nice. Anybody else on the defense that stood out to you? Yeah, great read by Tabor playing zone. I, I, all I can do is wish we would have done that against Tennessee. But uh, I thought those two guys stood out on, on defense. I thought Zuniga stood out. He didn't do anything on the stat sheet, but when you when you watch the film, he was our only lineman that was consistently throwing whoever was in front of him four yards back on every single play that he was in there. So much so that they actually pretty much just stopped running the ball to his side. They were exclusively going away from him because he was controlling their side of the line so well. That guy is a freak, and he's going to only get better. So very exciting to see him. On the other side of the ball, uh, Scarlett, who we've mentioned, I thought really, really stood out. And then, hey, Pinheiro won us this game. And, and that may have <laughs> gotten sense, lost, yes, but yeah. he did. I mean, he did. He hits, he hits you know, 40-plus yard field goal. We win by two field goals. 
if you if this is last year and we missed those field goals, we might not win this game. Who knows? But nice job by him in a game that was close to bang those field goals in. And, and look, a win's a win. It's not pretty. It's not happy. I'm not looking forward to what we might do this week from what we've seen. But good job by him. Special teams, though, outside of just him, continues to be something that Mixed seems bag. to be frustrating. What are your thoughts? Well, two guys I want to highlight, and they got a lot of love on the broadcast. I mean, Johnny Townsend continues to be a weapon for us. Flips the field reliably. Um, love having him back there. Chauncey Gardner, you know, when he was on the field, made a couple nice plays. He's a young guy. I think it can be that gunner for us that we want. So our punt coverage seems to be, you know, excelling. Our punt return, I feel like Antonio Cali, has he been drunk back there the last two weeks? It's inexplicable. We always talked about him as being reliable. He does a smart thing. He has no idea what to do with these rugby punts. They're killing us right now. And that's the thing that, like, you pull that out of your bag to surprise somebody. And it's like, oh, they're rugby punted. And I was thought they were kicked deep. I can't touch it because I can't get that close to it by the time they get down there. It shouldn't be a thing that vexes you on every single punt. And, you know, he went backwards, which is fine. That happens in a punt return. But just looks like he's lost back there right now. Yeah, there are a lot of questions being raised about Greg Nord right now, the special teams coach. A lot of people want his head, along with Mike Summers. We've mentioned this on multiple occasions, the special teams unit. It continues to be an inferior unit, committing penalties that it shouldn't commit, just seemingly not being well coached. So... Not sure what's going on this week in the coaches' meetings, but I imagine there's probably a growing sense of urgency from Greg and his and his coaches to turn this around because it's quickly becoming a, a, a spot we're losing out outside of two individual talents, which is our punter and our kicker, which really has little to do with the rest of the special teams unit. The penalties, the the blocking on kickoffs and punt returns is just is very very subpar, along with Callaway's play, and then that's. That generally comes down to getting guys in the right spot. So disappointing there. It's something people are looking at, something we're looking at. Again, you don't just want to start asking coaches to be fired when they don't perform well, but special teams has been a problem. It's been inconsistent. It's been erratic. It's getting penalties. And judging by McIlwain's body language during these special team situations where he is visibly upset and and losing on the sideline, I think you can see that he's probably about had it too. He, he looks to be losing patience with that unit. Well, special teams is something you can improve on, too, throughout the year. It There's some tactical things. You can replace guys. You can shift guys. And it's not like, okay, these are the guys we have, and that's it. You can put some different guys into the slots. I love they made an adjustment with P. Ryan instead of Brandon Powell. So they are thinking about it. But, yeah, it's been another penalty, pre-snap penalty on a punt. That should happen only very rarely. And it's like some new guy was in there, and he did something. Like The fact we've had so many last couple games is – is highly questionable. Any other just thoughts on the game? Any little quick hitters? Few few news and notes things that you pick up on on film. We continue to run the ball a lot on second down. I don't know why, but I don't know the percentage. I didn't chart every single one, but it's a lot. Better than always on first down, I guess. And right, yeah. Team teams know it, and it doesn't matter the situation. So I'll give you an example from the game. Situation one is you you run a pass on first down and you lose two yards because it's a you know backward screen to get sacked, and on second down you run. Uh, you complete a pass for six yards on first down, and it's second and four, and then you run. Almost every time. And it seems That's like true. other defenders and teams know this. We've talked about teams keying on our plays. If you watch the linebackers' footwork, they're coming downhill on second down a lot. And, and I, it's something I'm going to pay attention to this weekend. Um, I don't know why we do it, but we're doing it. 
We tried to move the pocket only once last game. Not sure why we haven't tried to do that more. We failed miserably. Uh, Cronkred, I believe, whiffed the block. It looks like we'd never even practiced it, which is pretty bad. Why we're not moving the pocket more when we're having such trouble blocking the edge, I don't really know. Our play-action fakes continue to just be horrible. Like, they don't care about actually doing them. For a team that's that's built upon play-action, why it's so bad, I don't really know. Um, not surprisingly, Appleby threw almost exclusively checkdowns in that game except for a few situations. Fullwood continues to be incapable of blocking on a wide receiver screen, which is hurting us when it would otherwise be a big play. And then last but not least, um, you know, we had that failed quarterback sneak where you had an offensive lineman false start that doesn't get called. You have a center snap the ball to avoid the false start, and the quarterback's not ready, and you turn it over. Those are just horrifically poor football plays. So... A lot of stuff in that game that maybe you just hope was a sandwich game effect. And you say, hey, on the road twice in Tennessee, letdown game after losing a heartbreaker to Tennessee, LSU on the docket. Maybe we just weren't mentally there. Do you think the early start may have played into it at all? That got talked a lot about in the press and you know, coming up to the league. People asked McElwain about it. It's hard to know. On the road early is tough, I think. It's different than on the you know a twelve o'clock start at home, possibly. But the things that were you would think would usually show up in an early start, kind of sluggishness or I don't know, maybe stupid mistakes, weren't the things that were really plaguing us. Maybe the offensive line suffered from that. I'm not sure. But it's really when we when the teams know we're gonna pass with Appleby, it, when it's third and some kind of distance. They're basically, I don't know if they're forcing him to or that he's just choosing to check down, but it's not effective. And then he misses some of the better reads when he does have time. So um, that was that was the thing that stuck with me is that when we had to pass, it was really difficult for us to. Indeed it was, and that was unfortunate. So let's, let's put a cap on this weekend by looking at what the other SEC teams did. A lot of SEC action. Uh, of course, there was one game that was absolutely insane. Let's start with one that was not insane. The SEC West, Alabama versus the East in Kentucky. Alabama wins 34-6. to Yeah, some people were you know, joking around that uh, Kentucky shouldn't show up for this game. Just take a forfeit. What are they going to do to you? But, um, yeah, n- I, not as bad as it could have been, I guess. No, close. Close for a while, although the East continuing to prove that they are what I think is the, the worst division in football. And let's look at the next result, which is similar. LSU versus Missouri at home with Ed Orgeron, who turned around USC magically. Game one with him seems to be successful. Yeah, Missouri not showing up for this one. And I don't know if that's more LSU or them um, finally getting exposed because they had lo- not looked as bad as we maybe thought they had previously. Arkansas waxed Alcorn State 52-10. Nothing expected. Yeah, nothing special there. A&M beating South Carolina in a game that was close for a long time. Will Muschamp proving that his defense continues to produce no matter where he is. Yeah, I think, you know, they're going to score 13 points, and if they can hold the other team to 10, they'll win. Otherwise, that's it. I mean, they're yeah, this is a, a good result for them, I guess, theoretically. I don't know. I'm just smiling as I hear you say that because it is, it's sad that we're kind of in the same situation now, but that, that is totally the Will Muschamp mindset. Uh, Ole Miss versus Memphis. Ole Miss wins 48-28, jump out to a 24-7 lead, sort of blow it again, hang on to win. I've never got super uncomfortable, but... Yeah, when you play that fast, that there's, there's more plays available, there's more time to score, I think you'll expect some of those things. Gus Malzahn, happy to keep his job waxing Louisiana Monroe 58-7. Yeah, you know, I mean... 
Auburn, though, they've struggled to put points on the board, even against some lesser teams, and when they're not when they weren't doing well last season. So I think it's got to be encouraging. It's not discouraging. So that's good. Yeah, they're a, they're a dangerous team, I think. Uh, they can probably play with anyone, and they can also probably lose to most teams. But Great interesting defense. interesting season for them ahead. Then finally, Tennessee, who seems to have all of the luck of the world. They've, they've taken Les Miles' deal with the devil. They've, they've taken whatever favorite sacred object you may have that works for winning. And they beat Georgia in one of the most insane college football games you could possibly witness and a heartbreaker to Gator fans just about everywhere 34-31 and a Hail Mary thanks to a squibbed kickoff that gets returned with a penalty that was unreal I mean Tennessee's luck with fumbles they're I don't know just pulling a rabbit out of their butt every week it feels like I don't know this game was crazy I wasn't able to watch it live and looking back I mean Georgia with that nuts play to score <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Tennessee's a team of destiny. I don't think so. I think they're going to get handled by the later part of their schedule. And we need them to lose two games if we wanted to have a shot at the East. And this, I thought Georgia could win going into the week. I thought it would be a trap game for them. And it was, but they still somehow pulled it off. Really frustrating. Yeah, very frustrating. If you're a Georgia fan, you probably actually kind of feel better. Uh, to me, this continues to point to the the sign that the, the West is so much better than the East. And we're going to find out what Tennessee's made of when they play Alabama this week. Alabama, like I continue to say, is a beatable team, but they also play in the West, so they should be a lot better. But, man, that was frustrating. It's really frustrating to watch this inferior Tennessee team win football games. It just drives me mad. Um, with that, it's time for our Gator guest. Uh, we had a guest on last year named Ryan Nanny, and we decided, hey, look, let's bring him on again this year. He's, he's a great guy, great pop culture guy, one of Allen's favorites, and we're going to talk to him right now. Back on the podcast, Gator grad, Twitter famous, blogger, host of all kinds of things, the illustrious Ryan Nanny. Ryan, thanks for being on again. Thanks for having me, guys. Ryan, what's your favorite, just most memorable, first thing that comes to mind when you think of the LSU-Florida rivalry? Oh, um, if, it, if it's favorite, I think it has to be the jump pass. I mean, that was I, – I was, I was at that game – and just like the sort of shittiness of it, the sort of like unnecessary quality of it at the time, uh, and the fact that you know they they later used it against us, um, that's up there. I don't know. It, it, we were talking about this uh, just the other day. How LSU Florida feels like it's constantly a. It, it's kind of like two kids that are building a ramp. And, and the ramp keeps getting more and more unsafe. That's sort of LSU. Like, hey, what dumb, what dumb, ridiculous way can we try to beat Florida this year? What's what crazy fake or what you know fourth down nonsense can we use? And I I would like to see Florida start getting back into it a little more because I feel like we're playing it a little too safe. And like, whatever, fake punt on second down, just go for it. See what happens. I love it. Speaking of craziness. Let me ask you, who's actually crazier, Les Miles or maybe Coach O? Oh, boy. Um, so I guess some of it is, is sort of relative because I don't, think, I don't think Les Miles lived a particularly crazy life. Like, I think for all of his coaching weirdness and the fact that he could never really string together a coherent paragraph where you were confident you knew what he was saying – the whole way through. I suspect he was probably just a pretty 
normal Midwestern based, Midwestern born uh, dad. Whereas Coach O, I mean, Coach O is definitely hunted an animal you're not allowed to hunt with a instrument you're not allowed to use to hunt. And that alone, I feel like he, you know, the, the ease with which at USC he waved that sword around after they beat Stanford, I want to say, um, I think Coach O is probably the crazier one. Uh, agreed. I, you kind of never know what he's going to do or say, and that's, I think, usually a problem for a fan base to trust their coach. But yeah. Um, speaking of trusting coaches here, James, <laughs> what are your current thoughts and or confidence on one Jim McElwain? Um, God, it just can I if if it's out of ten. 10 being extremely confident, zero being no confidence whatsoever. I'm settled in pretty squarely at like six and a half, seven. Like, it's definitely frustrating that this team can't sort of make the offensive jump. And by jump, I just mean, you know, I don't know, score 25 points against Vanderbilt instead of what they actually did. Uh, but then you can sort of say, well, you know, offensive line has been an issue for this team for so long that it's almost sort of like this perverse legacy at this point. Quarterback is the same way, and the fact that every time, you know, now, two years in a row, it, when they find a little consistency and positive play at that position, something goes terribly wrong. Granted, two very different things. Um, and so I'm kind of, I'm still kind of willing to give him a little bit of a pass, only because difference to me between Jim a uh, Jim McElwain team and a Will Muschamp team is I don't think Jim McElwain is happy with these games and I think Will Muschamp was totally fine like winning 10 to 6 15 to 9 I think Will Muschamp was like yeah that's real football that's how the big boys play <laughs> I love it uh yes I think he's gonna run South Carolina into the ground winning or losing every game 13 to 10 or something like that um, spe- but hey, but hey, it's not like any of us could have seen that coming. No, no. How could South Carolina have possibly foreseen that? Um, speaking of the SEC East, <laughs> it's been James's contention that the SEC, SEC East is the worst division in football. I think last time you were on, we talked about what a dumpster fire it is. Would you say that it's the worst division in college yeah. football? Um, man, the big the Big Ten, the Big Ten West is certainly making an interesting case because even though Nebraska is undefeated and Wisconsin was very highly ranked. If you watch the Wisconsin-Michigan game, there was nothing that the Badgers showed you to be impressed by. Iowa's already lost to an FCS team and just lost to Northwestern. Uh, two of the teams in the Big Ten, the, the, the uh, Western Michigan, currently 2-0 and against the Big Ten West. So that's not to denigrate the Big Ten as a whole because the East has a decent amount of talent right now, except for Rutgers. Um, but... That division is pretty crap right now. I also am, I also really don't know how to feel about the Pac-12 South. It's really fun that Colorado um, is ranked again for the first time in quite a while. Uh, Arizona State was undefeated, and then they get stomped. Utah just played the dumbest end of game I've seen in a, a good while against Toulouse to Cal. UCLA and USC are kind of totally all over the place. And Arizona, I, I have not watched a single snap of Arizona football. So the good news is I think it's a harder argument than it has been in recent years. Um, 
But if you if you want to tell me the SEC East is still the worst, I can probably get on board with that. So before the season, Alan and I did a little hot seat game, and uh, on on a hot seat that's not hot yet is is one Kirby Smart at Georgia, and I described it as being on an unlit bonfire. And so so far, so far, yeah, the unlit bonfire has been a fun reference around the show here for for this whole season. But given what you've seen thus far, and with the success that Mark Richt has in Miami. What do you think the mindset of a Georgia fan is right now? If you're, I think most, I would hope that most Georgia fans are keeping it relatively cool right now because, yeah, you got you got trashed by Ole Miss, but Ole Miss certainly had shown during the season that they, they had a ceiling that was top five level, uh, certainly with what they did for half of the uh, Alabama game. Yeah, you lost to Tennessee, but... I don't even know what to say about like what that says about you as a team. You still have a good, promising quarterback. You still have guys who can run the ball even when Nick Chubb gets hurt. Um, your defense is kind of struggling a little bit here. They've given up 154 points through five games, and that's not ideal. I I, I just don't know what – if you're a Georgia fan and you weren't expecting some adjustment going to a new coach for the first time in forever – I think you kind of only have yourself to blame right now. Uh, but that would be kind of a Georgia way to do it. So, Indeed. Well, let me ask you this on maybe the more positive side. Do you feel like there's hope for the SEC's, SEC East moving forward? Do you feel like the programs in it are heading in the right direction? Um, I, so I think the, the question to me is what, what the West has over the East is that it's not sort of the same rotation of these are the three – three-and-a-half teams that are going to win this division or even be competitive within it. I mean, Missouri was Missouri obviously did some very nice things in the East for a while there, although that was kind of accompanied by Florida having down years, Georgia and Tennessee having down years. It would be a lot better if Missouri was, was playing at that level again and then one of Kentucky, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt sort of jumped up back to you know consistent eight win status which none of those are even close right now it feels like um if they're and i really don't know if any of them are going to get there the maybe the the closest would be kentucky if you're willing to say they have a lot of talent based on who mark stoops recruited and if they bring in somebody who can do something more meaningful with it because god knows kentucky has done almost nothing with it so far this year they could get back to that sort of – I'm kind of thinking like the level that Mississippi State has been the last couple of years where you're like, yeah, we don't think they're going to win the division, but at least they will give some people a game. Um, the problem is just, I mean, the basement of the SEC East is so, so, so far down the basement of the West. The, the worst team in the West right now, um, just based on – overall record is Mississippi State and I would pick them in a heartbeat over any of the over any of Kentucky South Carolina or Vanderbilt right now all right let me ask you what was more enjoyable for you this weekend watching the excellence that was Louisville Clemson or watching the UNC kicker Tomahawk chop his way down the field after making that field goal oh it's 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 definitely the UNC kicker just because um like Louisville Clemson was a game that we knew was supposed to be great and it was and i think 
sometimes it kind of it kind of takes away from the experience because you're like, yes, this thing that I thought was going to be wonderful and awesome, it lived up to expectations. But UNC bombing a a deep field goal to beat Florida State at home, and and not so much just like what that says because look, UNC played in the ACC championship game last year. Um, have they've done some good things under Larry Fedora? It's more that. It has sent Florida State fans and Florida State Twitter into kind of apoplectic shock at this point, where they're very much like, it's fun that you can go on Twitter right now and you can find a Florida State fan who thinks Jimbo is not the man for this job anymore, which is great, which is just wonderful. I know, I loved it too. It was fantastic. Um, I, I know that I hate when someone gator chomps in our face i think you referenced earlier today and james has said it before um you know the brock berlin you know gator chomp in the miami game but i do love it when someone mocks fsu i i can't help it it's in my blood i guess yeah i mean it's it's like i i I said this on the shutdown forecast that this is the danger of having a a hand motion associated with your team and everybody hates it every time somebody scores against texas and throws horns down every texas fan out there is it's 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 like they burned the american flag on the field it's that level of anger and disrespect but it's kind of our own fault for saying like hey what if we had something easily identifiable that you didn't have to hear a person to understand what they were referencing and when a kicker does it it's just it's just that much better (laughs) especially it's especially great with a kicker because like oh damn it he doesn't even use his arms (laughs) (laughs) so looking forward to the game this weekend which has taken a potential turn for the worst given the injury report what is your prediction for the game score wise and what is what you think is a, a key matchup in the game Oh boy. Um it, I guess it's I guess it's really going to be interesting to see how much how much Florida can force LSU to pass. And and that's more a question of like on second and 6, second and 7, can you get a meaningful stop there or at least force them into a decision or are you going to be facing a lot of third and 2, third and 3 where even if you get the stop you're not forcing LSU to do anything that they don't that they don't want to do, basically. Um, because I would like to believe that Danny Etling is not the kind of quarterback who, given Florida's overall secondary strength and overall pass rush strength, can hold up to that for four quarters. Um, that said, that was also kind of my hope in the Tennessee game, and it didn't really pan out over the course of that. So. I, I probably just because of the how strong LSU looked in their first game under Coach Orgeron, and I think sort of the chip on their shoulder they have right now to prove that they're still talented and that we weren't totally wrong for ranking them where we did at the beginning of the season. I think they probably win. I'm going to say by a little more than a score, maybe like a nine-point, ten-point game, something like that. All right. Spread right now is two and a half points. Ryan, tell the people where they can find your content and your uh, golden pipes each week. So uh, primarily, I I write over it every day. should be Saturday. We have a little podcast there called The Shutdown Fullcast. You can listen to me, Spencer Hall, and Jason Kirk. We do almost no research, and so if you listen to anything we say and rely upon it, 
um, you can't be mad at us because I just warned you against it. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Celebrity Hot Tub, where you can easily be confused into thinking that I'm Eddie Murphy. It disappoints people every time they see what I actually look like. And also want to give a little shout out to Wake Up College Football, a little host, a little show that you and Dan Rubenstein host. It's excellent. Check it out. And uh, Ryan, thanks so much for being on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Let's turn our attention to LSU this weekend. The first time in, in many years, I think at least 12, that Les Miles is not the head coach of LSU. Are our chances better or worse without Les? That's a really tough question. I want to say worse, but I do really like the fact that they got one game out of the way before playing us. It seemed like they were really emotional, fired up to play and prove themselves. And I'm glad they got that out of the way. I'm hoping that there's going to be a step down for them this week. Tactically, I mean, everyone's agreement that Les Miles and Cam Cameron had kind of taken that ship as far as they could offensively. And LSU looked much better offensively last week. We'll see if they can hold up with that. But yeah, it feels like I knew I was going to get with them with Les Miles. Even if they did some crazy over-the-head fake, at least I could anticipate the insanity. I don't know what to expect right now. It always felt like Les Miles' teams underachieved. He accomplished a lot there, but I think that's why he got fired. Is He had a lot of talent, he had a lot of ability, and he seemed to just get the, the minimal result that you would have expected in most seasons. Ed Orgeron at USC had that magical run where he took a team and he, he got the most out of them, and they decided not to keep him, and, and here he is again at LSU. So there's a part of it that plays into my own psychology that thinks, oh, great, Ed's done this before, he might do it again. And the second piece is like what you said. Their offense under Les was very simple. It's very vanilla. And uh, if you look at their team last week versus the previous weeks they played this season, they've already made several changes. So we know they like to run the ball a lot more than they they pass the ball. It's about 57-43. It didn't change last week against Missouri. But they did debut several things they haven't done in the past 12 years. Uh, They ran a lot of single back. They ran a lot of four wide with their receivers, and they ran a lot of zone blocking schemes. They do zone block, but it was rarely. It wasn't as often as they did it last week. Um, Their practices now have become much softer. So Les Miles was sort of an old school, hit each other, rough each other up practice guy. And under Ed, it's much more of an NFL style situation. So the players claim they were far fresher coming into that game against Missouri. Uh, Steve Ensminger, who's different than obviously Cam Cameron, and part of that even concerns me. Like, Cam Cameron left the Ravens, and the Ravens won a Super Bowl <laughs> in the middle of that season. So it's like, great. He now leaves LSU, where they always blamed his play calling, and uh, and they get a tight, a former tight ends coach, and they're calling the play. So this team is much, much different than what they would have been under less with regards to some of the philosophy. But at the same point in time, the players and everything built is still the same. It's still primarily a running team. But what does worry me is, can they get more out of these players? And last week, they certainly did. They had 634 yards, which is the most they've ever had against an SEC team. They had 412 rushing yards. All of this playing without Leonard Fournette. Um, They just dominated that game against Missouri. And Missouri, on the road once before, was was pretty poor in a loss they had in their opener. And they're not exactly what you would consider to be a juggernaut of a team. But this LSU team... A ton of returning starters this year. A lot of talent. They had a lot of talent, a lot of preseason hype. They have veterans across the board on both sides of the ball. And if Ed's able to unlock what he'd unlocked last week, you would think that, yes, the answer to that question is definitely that there is some more fear with Ed at the helm than Les Miles. 
Uh, a second thing that factors into my fear, probably even subconsciously, are the injuries. LSU's got two linemen that could be missing the game. Uh, they could be getting one of their one of their linebackers back as well. So their injury report's smaller. It's a little more normal. Ours, on the other hand, is a long list. It's rough, and it especially concentrates around the defensive line, especially the front seven. Joey Ivey, we know he's out. Missed him last week. Jordan Sherrod out again. That's really rough. Those two guys have been really productive and stable. Brian Cox was in and out. He's going to be limited. We're not sure. Caleb Brantley, apparently he's sick. Hurt finger. I would expect him to play. Alex Anzalone, maybe our best defender. Splint on his hand. I think he'll probably go, but is he going to be limited? David Sharp on the offensive line, questionable. What happens if they reshuffle some things? And then Brandon Powell with an ankle injury. Um, Who knows how that's going to go for him this week. So a lot of our significant players dealing with some kind of injury. And that's that's difficult. And then maybe the other guy on the injury list that we'll get to right now, Luke Del Rio. We're going to have this conversation assuming he's going to play because it seemed like that's what they've been leading towards this whole time. So that then begs the question, who would you like in this game, James? You've been a fan of Austin Appleby. Would you rather see Appleby or Del Rio out there? Well, I guess it should be said for the record that I said two games <laughs> would have to be what we what we saw. And there's never base anything on one game, which we didn't. And after the Vanderbilt game, you know, I think I even said that on this particular Monday, we will know who the quarterback should be. For me, that question has been answered. I think that it should be Del Rio. It should be worth noting that it doesn't feel like to me that Del Rio is a guy that leads this team to 35 points a week either. But I think all the reasons why we originally listed Del Rio as the starter in the beginning of the year, he manages the offense better. He's a better leader. He, he probably takes the more obvious plays better than Appleby does. Lacks the arm strength and some other things we haven't seen going into this game. Uh, my brother, I think, said it best. If you could combine Appleby and Del Rio, you probably have one actually capable starter. And I think that's true. We could do a pros and cons with them. There's no need to. I think they're fairly obvious at this point. But combining them both of what you want, you don't have that. So take the guy that is more likely to move the ball with the obvious throws than the guy who literally you don't know what you're getting with. And when you get the bad side of Austin Appleby, you're missing a lot of bunnies. So I like Luke Del Rio for that. Both of those guys did a pretty good job of avoiding turnovers and sacks. Uh, So the real question into this week is how does Del Rio's MCL respond? He's going to practice. How does it swell? How does it feel? How can he plant? How can he move? I can't see our offensive line all of a sudden magically becoming incredible. So both of those guys are going to have to escape at times. Um, So they'll both be ready to play, but I would prefer Del Rio at this point. How about you? Yeah, same. I like his command of the offense. That's what we've talked about. And even the things that we were criticizing him beforehand, not having quite the same anticipation that we would want him to. Uh, Hopefully, you know, even some weeks off can give him a chance to study film, look at that stuff, rest. I'm hopeful that he'll be able to play a good game. I mean, mobility is never the thing that he's going to lead with, so I don't know that the MCL like really affects him all that much unless he takes a hit there. But I think the team can move the ball with Appleby. Um, I would like the coaching staff to do some things that would take advantage of his strengths and let him throw the ball downfield. But, yeah, it doesn't feel like a real win with either of them, but maybe not a real loss either. So that's kind of where I'm at. But definitely looking forward to having Luke Del Rio back in the game, which I don't know that I would have said necessarily, you know, especially halftime in Tennessee. 
But uh, that's kind of where we are. That, like you said, neither guy's probably excellent, but hopefully with Del Rio back there, there's a reason he won the job that he can get this team to score some points. And one final thought on the quarterback situation heading into this week is that LSU has transitioned this year to a 3-4 defense. They still run some 4-3, but the 3-4 twice has given Del Rio incredible amounts of problems because it puts four athletic linebackers on the field that are lengthy and cover his windows. So something to note there, Appleby hasn't gone against that, so we can't know what that's like. Of course, it would confuse him too because he, he doesn't necessarily read the field well post-snap at all. But something to note, Del Rio's weaker games have come against teams that have employed a, a three-down lineman system. LSU has done that. They're still learning how to do that, but it will be different um, than what's gone on in the past two weeks for sure. So the offensive line, is there anything that can be done to improve upon the offensive line? Let's put our coaching hats on and, and think about what could we do based on what we've seen thus far this season. It's difficult um, to, without aging them forward two years, but there's a guy who's coming back to play a little bit last week, Tyler Jordan. We talked about him being one of the more stable offensive linemen, um, maybe the most consistent and so I would expect him to get some playing time. We could see some shuffling, you know, especially if David Sharp didn't go. Can Martez Ivy perform better at left tackle? That's his position that he came in hyped for. Could putting him out there, you know, where he only has to deal with, you know, fewer options in terms of what's coming at him, uh, you know, could process a little bit and play a little bit better. Seems like there needs to be something happening gosh, it's hard to say because you don't want to just constantly shuffle it. That's not the answer either. Continuity helps along the offensive line, but it does seem to be some changes need to be made. And then uh, the other thing that's hard is because our tight ends aren't great blockers. Goolsby and Lewis aren't guys you just line up in you know, road grade people. They're basically glorified receivers. So not a lot other than maybe a little bit of reshuffling. How would you attack the problem? Yeah. It, on film, there's two guys that this whole season seem to be the most consistent, and that's going to be Tyler Jordan, who we're getting back, and, and Fred Johnson. Uh, those two guys are the most consistent. They both currently sort of play the same position, um, which is guard, and, and they're not occupying that same position at the line at the same time per se because Ivy's in the other guard slot. With Sharp being out, you might even get the more wild card formation of let's put Ivy at left tackle, like you said, his natural spot. I haven't seen him there. I haven't seen him there at practice, so it's really hard to evaluate this. Right. We haven't seen him in the game. He could be horrible. From what I've seen from Sharp, though, it's worth putting anyone else there. So maybe you put Ivy there, and you can shuffle uh, both Fred Johnson and Tyler Jordan to the guard spots and then have Jawani on the other side. That seems to me like a, a viable lineup. The other thing you could do is you could put Tyler Jordan at center. Cam Dillard's probably going to stay the center. I don't think he can play anywhere else, but he, he continues to disappoint on tape. So I don't think they would do that. But if I'm like Summers, I consider that. I think they need to have, from what we've seen, Fred Johnson and, and, and uh, Tyler Jordan on the field at the same time. Again, I don't think either of these guys are heroes per se, but they're the least likely to ruin a play. And, and to me, that's a metric maybe I start using now uh, in these games, especially a game that you have to win against LSU. So we will see what happens if Sharp is out because that will require a shuffling of the line. But clearly, Ivy guide has been struggling. Uh, guard has been struggling. And an opportunity for both Johnson and I think Jordan, who played the best, to, to sort of get in there. Let's flip sides of the ball and look at the defense. What in this game is the defense going to have to do, potentially facing almost the entire starting defensive line being out? I think we're going to have to move away from our beloved nickel and 
there's going to have to be a third linebacker on the field almost at all times. I think that's what I would do. And we're not super deep there. Maybe a few guys who are nicked up as well. But uh, if those guys can be healthy, if we can see McMillan, if we can see uh, Kylan Johnson, maybe give David Reese, who seemed instinctual as a run defender in the limited snaps he's gotten, the true freshman. Uh, I would love to see an extra linebacker on the field. I think our, you know, our corners are capable of holding up, you know, and, and maybe Marcus may gets walked down like he does all the time into the box, but um, I would trust our corners against Danny Etling, you know, throwing the ball down the field into those tight windows. You would love to see us employ more of a multiple front in this game. Um, <laughs> the problem now is, how do you do it if you want to run a five-two and you want to bring two down linemen and we don't have the bodies anymore? True. So that's out. If you want to run a three-four, we don't have the linebackers. And you wouldn't wholesale switch this, but just as an example of kind of how Jeff Collins is stuck strategically here, not a lot of options. The healthy bodies are in your secondary. Well, you don't need those guys for this kind of game. LSU is frequently going to employ um, one and two wide receiver sets. Yeah, they're going to throw out the four wide, but that's primarily to spread you out and run and occasionally throw passes. They're primarily going to stay in a, in a, a twin tight end set uh, where those guys can block on their big. So I'm not sure how we're going to match them. We're going to have to load the box up. We're going to have to play a lot of man. We're going to have to follow a similar plan that we did against Tennessee, but more aggressively stopping the run than we did against Tennessee. Um, I imagine we're probably going to try to start conservatively and make them prove it to us. They can run on our backups. But I think very quickly we're going to need to adjust to a very run-heavy posture. And if they're going to beat us, they're going to have to throw the ball. We cannot allow them to run for two or 300 yards. But with that being said, there's there's very limited options in our toolbox right now. When you're talking about playing freshmen at all these positions, you're, you're hoping more than you are being tactical. And, and I don't have a good answer for it. And I'm sure uh, Jeff is spending all of his waking hours thinking about what to do. But I think at the very least, I would love to see a lot of stunting, a lot of movement. Uh, a lot of what the Patriots will do when they go against teams that have better fronts than them, which is line up in weird spots and don't let them know where you're set so they have a hard time blocking you. That's probably the first thing I would do. We don't do that under Collins, so I don't expect it to happen, but that's probably something I'd look at doing. Um, let's jump over some keys to victory here. Like, let's look at this game tactically from one percentage, you know, or from one point of view. Um, what do the Gators need to do on offense and defense to win? On offense, we have to have a decent offensive line showing. They, they've got a guy in Arden Key uh, who is a fantastic pass rusher, number 49. He plays that defensive end hybrid 3-4 spot as a linebacker. He has seven sacks. He leads the nation. Um, we've seen what we've done against elite pass rushers. They've pretty much killed us. I expect him to do more of the same. If we can somehow bottle him up some, then that would be certainly productive. On the flip side, uh, on the defensive side, we're going to have to stop them from running the ball, which just seems obvious, right? Everyone's going to say that, but we're going to have to. We cannot allow them to control the clock, to score a couple of times early with the run. Uh, we will be way behind the eight ball. So we've got to find a way to do that. So I think it comes down to the lines. And and on you know if you look at the stats, our defense is better than their defense. Uh, just statistically speaking, they've got a much better run game than we have. Our passing game is rated slightly better than theirs. We're more penalized. Their schedule's been way, way harder than ours. And oh, by the way, they play in the SEC West, which has trounced every East opponent they've played. A lot of factors seem to be going against us when I look at these things. I think we would have to have a rather heroic effort to win this game, given the hand that we're currently being dealt. 
I would agree. I, and some of those things are obvious. Like you said, my one of my keys would be, you know, stopping the run. And I think we can do it. Um, you're right. The, the, Jeff Collins has been dealt a difficult hand here. But I, I do think we still have the personnel. There's still some guys along the line. Gary Clark, CC Jefferson. There's still some talent there on defensive line. It's not like we're totally bereft of any kind of ability to stop the run. I think it's really going to come down to our offense. Can Luke Del Rio lead some consistent scoring drives? Can we pick up those third downs that we weren't picking up with Austin Appleby? Can he hit the right guys? They're, the plays were there against Vanderbilt, and we weren't making them. And then, you know what? I think we're going to need some help in the return game. I think we're going to need a kick or punt return. That hasn't been the case for us. But if we can make something happen there, I think we're going to need something like that. Otherwise, I, I think we're going to slowly get ground into mush. All right, James, give me a prediction here. I Man, today's been such a just a sad day for me. I just feel like it's a like what you said last year. Every time as a Gator fan, you think you're getting something good. It gets taken away from you. And that's how this whole season is starting to feel with these injuries mounting. This would have felt different for me if we were healthy. I would have thought it was going to be a close back-and-forth game where anything could have potentially happened. Um, but the momentum seems to be really, really against us right now on a variety of fronts. And so my prediction is going to roll with that momentum. I think LSU comes in, rides the high that they have, controls the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, uh, and sort of imposes their will upon us and, and wins this game 27 to 13. I think they have they have veteran players across the board. They have better players talent-wise at most of the positions. Um on both sides of the ball. Our secondary is better than their secondary, but even there, they've got an All-American that can flat out play on that side of the ball too. So this isn't like we just say, oh, we're a better team here. If this feels this feels like a, a big challenge for this team to be able to win this game. So I'm going to stick with that, that 27-13 loss in the Swamp, which would be a rather devastating loss for McIlwain and the crew. What do you have? I'm kind of close to you on this. I've, I've been going back and forth. For some reason, I feel like we're going to be able to score a little bit against them. I don't know why um, exactly, um, because maybe it's a little bit better play from the offensive line. I think we're going to have to put up more points, be a little more aggressive than we have been. We're not going to be able to play a Vanderbilt-type game and win 13-6. to So I feel like it's going to be a little close. I was going to go 24-17 LSU. We both predicted LSU to win this game at the start of the season. It's a different LSU team now that maybe even plays into their hands. So... Uh, Tough day for the Gators, but not a blowout, at least at this point for me. Welcome to the show, Chris Blair, the voice of the LSU Tigers. Uh, taking over from Jim Hawthorne, who we got the chance to interview last year. Chris is in his first year there. Chris, thanks for joining us. No problem, guys. Looking forward to it as as much as I am looking forward to, to coming to Gainesville later in the week. And we're looking forward to having you, although we're probably slightly apprehensive about what this what this game result might be like. Before we jump into the football, what is it like taking over for a legend like Jim Hawthorne? Well, it's uh, you know intimidating to say the very least. Uh, you know, I'd be lying if I said otherwise. You know, the beauty of this whole deal was uh, I got to finish uh, my last year at Georgia Southern last football season while Jim was doing his his last go around, and then got on the ground in Baton Rouge in early December, and then really you know just was able to assimilate and work with Jim, who, who finished up basketball into early March. Um, got to be around him. Got to take a lot of time with him and learn as much as as possibly uh i could 
before really taking over for baseball season that started in late February. So I had a little bit of advantage of having two months on the ground here to learn where to park, where my office was, uh, among other things, uh, and, and, and being able to go to basketball games and, and, and get to know the fans, get to know the people that are uh, involved here from, from a game day operation. So it really was a huge advantage of me for me, uh, which I think helped uh, looking back on it. Okay, so obviously the big news in the last few weeks has been the firing of Les Miles. Love to hear your thoughts on some of the differences between those two guys. Maybe even first, like the difference in offensive style that we saw last week from LSU as opposed to the previous tenure of Les Miles. You know, I think Coach Miles, uh, being a former offensive lineman at Michigan uh, over the last three years, really, including the four games this year, uh, felt like he had the best running back in the country. And that certainly is, uh, is, is he's got a pretty good argument there in Leonard Fournette. Uh, and there was no reason, I think, in his mind not, not to feature Leonard as much as possible. Um, so I think there was always this desire to, to control the ground game from the offensive line standpoint and, and allow Leonard to have 25, 28, 30 carries a game. Um, I think the difference over the last three years as each game has gone by uh, teams began to wonder whether or not they could throw side to side, whether they could throw underneath and in the middle of the field, and whether or not they could throw vertically down the field, and were willing to take and hedge their bets that they would stick to running between the tackles. And really through the first four weeks of this season, uh, there were eight, nine, ten men in the tackle box from Wisconsin to Jacksonville State to Mississippi State and, of course, against Auburn over on the plains. So, I think that was kind of the philosophy, and it had served him well. I mean, let's face it, 114 wins here, a national title, a couple of SEC titles. Uh, you can't argue with the results. Uh, the difference in this past week and Coach Ogeron taking over, uh, you know, they looked to change the offensive philosophy a little bit in the sense that, you know, you, you've got a great back in Leonard Fournette. You've got a great back in Darius Geis and a great back in Darrell Williams. Uh, but unless you're the incredible Hulk, it's going to be hard to find holes, get to the second level, and make plays uh, when there's 10 men in the box. You're simply outnumbered. So the philosophy change going into the matchup with Mizzou was to try to even up the numbers in the tackle box, and they did that uh, by making the offense, or rather the defense, that is, uh, honor four wide sets, a lot of ace formations with a single back. Uh, and it's very hard to, to start sneaking guys in the tackle box when you have to, to, to be honest and, and cover those guys who are spread across the field. So – uh, in and of itself, the biggest major change from uh, from the eye test was simply the, a lot of the formations that Coach O and Coach Steve Insminger put into place against Mizzou this past Saturday. How big of a difference was there? We saw the performance, we saw the score, but with your your feeling from what you've seen this year, less miles this year versus the results that happened last year. With, I mean, last week with Orgeron, how big of just how big of a difference was that in the team's performance? Oh, it was night and day. I mean, since arriving here in Baton Rouge, going through spring football and going through fall camp, I mean, there's no 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 question that this team is as talented top to bottom with this roster as anybody in the country. Uh, that's all anybody talked about. In fact, that's why I think LSU was so highly touted coming into the season. You could not deny the talent and the returning talent and the veteran experience that this team had. Um, it, that was put on display for the first time this year. Saturday against Missouri again a team that at the time led the SEC in total offense but let's face it they had not had the toughest schedule um, you didn't believe Missouri was world beaters taking nothing away from them uh, but again at home 
at Tiger Stadium, you expect a 42-7 win. I'm not so sure, based on the previous four weeks, if you would have guessed going into that game without Coach O kind of taking the reins and the governor, if you will, off this offense, that you would have been uh, able to get a 42-7 game. So the, the change is radical, but it's not just what you saw Saturday. The change was in the air on Monday when the Tigers came out to practice. It was just a different mentality. It's it's more rah-rah. It's more kind of a, a player's feel. And let's face it, Coach O has been known everywhere he's been since being in the coaching ranks as really a, a player's coach. Um, I think the benefit he has now being 55 years of age is there's there's a fine line between too, being too much of a player's coach. And he talked about that uh, Monday during his presser last week that he learned some very valuable lessons uh, at his stops at Ole Miss and the interim time he spent at USC where he went 6-2 and two after taking over for Lane Kiffin. So I, I think him being wiser, a little more mature, but still knowing how to stoke the fire of these players that are 18 to 22 years old uh, was the biggest change that started on Monday in practice, went all the way through the week, and culminated with that 42-7 win over Mizzou. What's the what's the emotion of the coaching staff? So a lot of these guys were were brought specifically by Les to come in to the team, and now they have this coaching situation. The players are obviously very re-energized. What's the feeling on the staff? What does Cam Cameron feel like? What do these other guys feel like? Are they re-energized or are they struggling? No, I think they're riding the wave of energy as well. I mean, I think that was I think the entire program and that entire building at Football Ops just had a change uh and it's not again going back to say that anything was done wrong it's just that things had gotten stale uh they knew the pressure they knew the pressure coming into this season they knew the pressure after losing 16 14 to wisconsin uh they knew the pressure when they were up 23 3 over mississippi state at home and won by 3 23 to 20 and they certainly knew the pressure when they lost to an auburn team who couldn't muster a touchdown uh while the tigers could only find one uh, the rest were field goals. So, you know, I think they felt the pressure, and that was kind of taken off their shoulders uh, once the change was made. And they're now going in saying, hey, Coach O, how can I help? How am I most effective in getting our team ready? Uh, you know, Ed made the statement last week that Steve Emsminger is now going to be the offensive coordinator, but it's not going to be solely on his shoulders. He said, I've got Damian Craig, who was a great player at Auburn and has plenty of experience coaching the wide receivers and understands what a quarterback needs to see to be successful. I need his voice in that offensive room. Uh, Coach Craigdorf as well has had plenty of experience on the offensive side of the ball. He is not a an official coach, but he is a consultant to the offensive program. He's a guy that we need to have his voice in, in the game planning each week. So I think it's more not taking anything away from Coach Ensminger, who certainly has experience calling plays and and as an offensive coordinator. But I think even Steve was excited about the idea of opening up that offensive room and saying, guys, let's put all of our minds together. Let's take all of our experience that we have, cumulative, and try to come up with a great game plan that puts our guys in the best position to win. And when you see the results from this past Saturday, which, again, not to beat a broken record, it was night and day. Uh, the play calling was night and day. When they threw was very different. Uh, it wasn't third and 12 when they were throwing. There was play action on first down. There was play action on second and three, uh, which we really hadn't seen a whole lot of this season. So I think the consortium of all these offensive coaches are now being brought together, and I feel like these coaches feel rejuvenated that, that they now have a voice and, and can have an impact on the game plan. And as you know, in any job, when, when someone looks to you and gives you an opportunity 
to have a little piece of ownership and a little piece of, of leadership, uh, most people, especially in this business, take to that. Well, the star for LSU is obviously Leonard Fournette. But can you give us maybe one or two players on offense and defense that Gator fans should keep their eyes open for during the game on Saturday? Darius Geis is going to be the guy. I mean, Leonard Fournette obviously is, is, is the top guy. I mean, as I said earlier, he's arguably the best running back in the country. He's not been 100% healthy. He took last week off. He also took a week off against Jacksonville State, trying to make sure that ankle gets back to 100%. Uh, but Leonard's a gamer, so whether he practices Monday or Tuesday or whether he comes in Wednesday, really doesn't matter. He's just gifted so that that he is one that uh, can make you can make you pay defensively at any given snap of the football. But Darius Geis is technically the backup running back, um, but most people will tell you who followed Geis's two years here at LSU, he's probably a starter on just about every other team in the SEC. Uh, it was the SEC Offensive Player of the Week this week after 163 yards and three rushing touchdowns. Uh, he can break it from 70 yards, and he can get down and dirty and break it in from, from five yards out. Coach O said uh, after the game Saturday that, that Darius Geis runs like Warren Sapp used to play defense, that when he comes up and you try to make the tackle, his plan is to run through you, and that's how he runs. Uh, so he's very effective, and, and I think even if Leonard is not 100%, he's going to play, and you'll probably have Fournette and Geis on the field at the same time, which is uh, you know, a pretty daunting task for, for any defense. But those two on offense, and I think Trey White defensively is a guy that you'll hear his name a lot uh, at the Swamp on Saturday. I mean, he is a, a lockdown corner. Uh, he's got an interception, a pick six in the first game against Wisconsin. Um, guys don't like to throw his way. Uh, he's a physical back. He's got a defensive back. He's got he's got good size, good speed, uh, and he's a ball hawk. I mean, he constantly is looking for the football. He's got two interceptions on the year. Had one against Mizzou that I think really early in the game told Drew Locke he was going to have trouble throwing vertically down the field. So I, I got to say, Darius Geis on the offensive side and 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 Tre'Davious White, who's also a pretty dangerous punt returner. He's got one of those in his pocket for a touchdown this year as well. So thinking about venues, this year you've gotten a chance to call a game at Lambeau Field, which I'm sure was special. You've gotten a chance to go to Auburn, and of course you've gotten a chance to call games at, at Death Valley. What are your expectations for calling a game in the Swamp? Well, I had that opportunity in 2013. Some of you may remember the uh, game and loss to Georgia Southern in 2013, um, and which granted at that point of the year I don't think it was full to capacity. Uh, I don't think they were as raucous as the season had not gone, certainly as, as Florida fans are accustomed to. Um, but it is a daunting place to go. It's intimidating, just like Tiger Stadium. And there are a number in the SEC that are like that. Um, you know, and I've always thought that the advantage comes to a visiting team, or the home team, I should say, for a visiting team, uh, when they're not accustomed to that type of atmosphere. Uh, obviously, it's different when you play at Tiger Stadium in front of 102,000 and they're pulling for you as opposed to going to a venue with 90-plus thousand that are pulling against you. But it, I think it's easier for, for teams who play that week in and week out to be able to block out the noise beyond the 52-yard width and the 100-yard distance on that field. Uh, still doesn't make it easy. Uh, and I know based on a 4-1 and one record, uh, based on having two trips to Tennessee back-to-back for the Gators and, and, and the outcome not exactly the way they wanted it, uh, they're going to be pretty rabid when, when the kickoff comes around at 12 noon uh, at Steve Spurrier Field at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. So it's going to be exciting. 
Uh, I think it's going to be a real key matchup in the SEC, an SEC East team that's trying to keep pace with Tennessee, and an LSU team that's trying to find a resurgence after having that uh, early season loss to Auburn. But it's going to be a dandy, no doubt about it. So another venue question here. You've uh, got on your resume some time at Clemson. Can you compare one Death Valley to the other? You know, i got to be honest, I get that question a lot. And, you know, having spent five seasons at Clemson, uh, you know, with 86, 87,000, whatever their their attendance is now, uh, it, it's a pretty raucous place as well as it was Saturday night and that went over Louisville. Uh, I think even the Cardinals had trouble with it, uh, especially late in that game. Uh, but it's a, it's a great venue. But i, I got to tell you, I've been to a lot of stadiums uh, as a fan and as a broadcaster, and it's hard to beat when you cross the uh, century mark. I mean, it's just it's just loud. And, you know, my early memories of, of LSU listening on the radio on WWL for years and listening to Mr. Hawthorne, I mean, one of the things that stood out was you had Jim Hawthorne and you had Tiger Stadium when they played at home. I mean, it, it is a part of the cast, and it's part of what I've tried to do and, and continue here uh, on the radio network. It's, it's me. It's Doug, uh, Doug Moreau, the All-American who played at LSU. It's Gordy Rush on the sideline. And it's Tiger Stadium uh, because it, it does have an impact. I, I, I've been asked several times, and I simply tell you, Death Valley is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. All right, Chris, prediction for this weekend. You guys are coming in riding a high. There's a lot of energy. There's a confident feeling that maybe you, you do have a chance to reach some of the goals that were set out in the preseason. The Gators uh, probably somewhat significantly more un known and uh, therefore less confident but what are your what are your thoughts on the game this weekend what do you think is a key matchup and then give me a score you know scores and predictions are not my strong suit but I, I will tell you this I, I think it is an important game for Florida uh, and I think it's a very important game for LSU and I know it's east versus west and and sometimes those are not the key matchups you're looking at but when you're talking about two programs that play every year uh, and the way last year's game ended and, and some of the, the late heroics by LSU to pull out that victory, uh, you know, I'm sure those returning for Florida certainly remember that game. Uh, so they're going to be up for LSU, as they are each and every time these two teams get together. Um, I think the key matchups that you need to look at are the offensive line play versus the defensive front. I'm not sure how healthy Florida is in their front seven or how healthy they will be, uh, but they've got a stable of talent. Uh, the offensive line took four steps forward against Missouri. Uh, they'll have a much bigger challenge against Florida, but I think they got more confidence last week than they did in the cumulative four weeks prior, um, the way they played, the way they fired off the football. Uh, they'll have to do that again against Florida. The key to LSU is still going to be running the football and running it successfully, and you have to get Fournette, Geis, and even Darrell Williams to the second level, and that's all on the offensive line. So that battle in the trenches, as it is most every week, to me, will be key to look at. The other thing I think that will also be key is, is Danny Atling has, has done a very good job of managing this offense. Um, he's not going to be the flashiest quarterback. He's not got the strongest arm. He's not the most fleet of foot. Uh, but he does make good decisions, and he manages this game very well. It'll be interesting to see how the defensive coordinator, Collins, comes after Danny Atling. Um, do they want to be able to bring safety blitzes? Do they want to bring guys from the corner? Are they going to test whether or not LSU can throw vertically down the field and, and give Danny time to stand in the pocket to do so? Um, so the, the game plan defensively, especially from the secondary from Florida, I think will be extremely key uh, because LSU is now at a point where everyone knows they want to run the ball. That's their bread and butter. But to run it effectively, they've got to be able to throw the ball. 
Um, so last week against Missouri, they were able to dink and dunk, pick up five yards, seven yards, and then go back to the running game. Uh, will they be able to do that against this Florida secondary that right now has eight interceptions? Uh, can they afford to throw the ball in the air that many times uh, against Florida? So to me, I think the battle up front and the passing game, and again, it's not a powerful onslaught of passing, but it has to be there for LSU. If the secondary of Florida can take that away, uh, I think that's going to be that's going to make for for a pretty good battle for four solid quarters. Score prediction again, not my thing. Uh, I don't see this being a, a huge uh, uh, offensive onslaught by both teams, but I could see this game getting into the 30s or 40s, and, and I'm not sure anybody's going to have a huge margin of victory. Uh, I think talent-wise, these guys are pretty close together. I think when it comes to coaches, McIlwain's one of the best in the country. Uh, he knows how important this game is going to be. So um, I think it comes down to the team that doesn't make the most mistakes and which team blinks first. And when you blink, uh, I got to guess the other team's going to make you pay. Well, Chris Blair, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. No, guys, I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Hope to see you uh, there at the Swamp on Saturday. James, let's end the show by looking at this weekend's big games. There's a lot of them. First, Texas-Oklahoma Red River shootout is what I'll continue to call it. Who you got? I almost feel like Charlie Strong is fighting for his job in this one. But Which Oklahoma. is weird because he was – yeah, riding a wave he was riding season. a wave, but Notre Dame is awful, and that wave crashed down with Notre Dame. Oklahoma's favored by 10. Oklahoma should win this game by at least 10. Uh, I think that they are a good football team, so I'm taking Oklahoma to cover the spread in this one. I'm going to take Texas to bounce back a little bit. Um, this game has weird results. It's kind of like Florida-Georgia. Um, Bama at Arkansas. Bama pretty heavily favored. Huge stretch for Alabama. They're going to play at Arkansas, then they're going to play against Tennessee at Tennessee, and then they're going to play Texas A&M. So this is their defining stretch right here for these three games. 13.5-point favorite at Arkansas. I love Arkansas. They're such a hard team to beat. That A&M game, I think a lot of the national media lost sight of how close that game was towards the end. Arkansas probably should have been winning that game. I think Arkansas gives Bama a serious game here. Uh, it, it seems to be matching up well for them. I like them to to cover this spread. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to win, but I think it should be really close. Agreed. I think they'll cover that easily, but I'm going to take Bama. Washington, resurgent Washington at fading Oregon. Talked about this game last week when they played Stanford. They crushed them. They looked fantastic. It's year three of Chris Peterson. That's when all of the great coaches, if they don't win a title in year two, they have their explosion year in year three. Seems to be doing it. Got to go on the road and win. They're favored by eight. I like Washington in this game. Oregon is going in the wrong direction. Yeah, big winning streak for Oregon over Washington here. I think that gets broken. Tennessee, smoke and mirrors Tennessee. Even though those smoky grays should be smoky mirrors at Texas A&M. I think it all comes crashing down for them here. SEC West versus SEC East. If my narrative is correct, I think Tennessee might lose this game by two or three scores on the road. I like A&M against them as well. Um, I think it'll be closer than you think, though. Yeah, A&M six and a half point favorite, but to me that feels soft. Okay, FSU at Miami. Suddenly, spunky Miami. Yeah, the line on this game before the season would have been Florida State by like 15. And now it's it's two points is all that it is. Uh, and Miami feels like they're there. I don't know what to think about this game because Miami doesn't have the proper talent yet to win this game. But Florida State it could be going into a hole for this season. It just is like, let's punt on this season and go to next season. So... Gosh, I, I really don't know. 
since I grew up a Hurricane fan and I hate Florida State, I'm going to go for Miami in this game. Uh, although I still feel like Florida State probably wins this one. Yeah, I'm going to take FSU in this one. feels like Miami's not quite ready for this. But uh, it, it'll be close, I think. Maybe we'll have another wide right, wide wide left, something in those <laughs> kind of moments. It's rivalry weekend this weekend, so hopefully the Gators can pull their best David impression out and beat an LSU team. Uh, and then we get a slate of entertaining games. The only benefit of a terrible noon game in the Swamp is that you do get to watch all of these other games. Small consolation, I know. And with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. As always, thanks for listening. You can check us out on Facebook. Please drop us a like. We appreciate that. Retweet us on Twitter. We love it when you guys do that. That's awesome. We appreciate you guys listening. We love doing the show, and we will see you next Monday, as always. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.